so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the ERLC Podcast. This week, we'll join Russell Moore in a panel of leading political thinkers. I think when we lose a sense of history, I I don't believe history repeats itself, but like Mark Twain said, it certainly rhymes. Uh, When you don't learn the lessons, uh, why the New Testament is the way it is, why certain books were excluded, and you find these arguments crop up again, we can't be secure in our faith if the historical underpinnings of the faith we're ignorant to and we get wrapped up in a Dan Brown novel that people in the media uh, on TV actually treat as nonfiction instead of fiction. At the ERLC's 2015 National Conference on the Gospel and Politics, Russell Moore moderated a panel discussing the state of evangelical politics. The panelists included Michael Gerson, an op-ed columnist for The Washington Post, Ross Douthit, an op-ed columnist for The New York Times, Rod Dreher, senior editor of The American Conservative, and Eric Erickson, a writer and radio host. I'd like to welcome with us today some of my favorite people in the world. Every one of uh, these people are those who have uh, benefited my life greatly, speaking and writing on, on so many issues thoughtfully and uh, convictionally, and like to introduce all of them to you. First here is Rod Dreher, who is with the American Conservative uh, Magazine. Before that, he was with the Dallas Morning News, the National Review, with other publications. He has a, a widely read blog. If you don't read that, I would uh, commend it to you. He's uh, posting to that many, many times a day. I don't know how you do it, but it's uh, updated all through the day, and I commend it to you. He has a new book called How Dante Saved My Life, talking about uh, experiencing a a kind of a midlife crisis and uh, how reading through Dante's Divine Comedy really uh, helped him to think through what what matters. We have also Eric Erickson, who is the editor at redstate.com. Eric is uh, frequently a commentator on Fox News as well. He has a radio program. He'll be uh, hosting uh, 10 of the presidential candidates uh, next week in Atlanta. Is that where where you'll be? Oh, Friday and Saturday of this week. Wow. Thank you for being here uh, with that kind of a week. So uh, he writes and speaks on issues of political engagement all the time. And in uh, more recent years, uh, Eric has uh, gone to seminary and is a student at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Atlanta and is taking a class a semester because he's uh, working toward an MDiv degree. Michael Gerson was speechwriter for President George W. Bush. He is uh, now columnist for the Washington Post. Most of you in this room read uh, Mike's writings. You're familiar uh, with uh, with his work. He is a graduate of Wheaton College. Uh, I remember uh, being on the on the campus at Wheaton uh, one day and seeing the student newspaper, and they had a throwback editorial from your days uh, back as a Wheaton student, which was interesting to interesting to see and to read. Really grateful for Mike being here and Ross Douthit 
who is columnist for the New York Times, who speaks, uh, speaks insightfully to issues across the spectrum from poverty to life to cultural trends in American life to the state of uh, Catholicism and, uh, and faith in Europe and in North America and around the world. I'm really glad to have all of you here. Uh, you know, Rod, uh, this morning, I don't know if you were in the room, I think the governor kind of um, took a little bit of a shot at you uh, because he, he talked about uh, the fact that we're not we're not called to retreat into this uh, Benedictine sort of uh, withdrawal from the world. And so I'm, I'm wondering, you've created quite a controversy over the so-called Benedict option. And many people would say, well, what you're saying is that political life and, and public life, that these these things are not worth doing anymore and that we ought to retreat back and build our institutions. Is that a fair characterization? And how would, how would you define what the Benedict Option is? Uh, no, it's not a fair characterization, but I'm glad you asked me that question because that's the immediate pushback I get when I talk about the Benedict Option. People think it's a, a call for heading for the hills or, or to retreat into fundamentalism. That's not what I mean. I call it the Benedict Option because it harkens back to St. Benedict of Nursia, a 6th century monk who was present in Rome as the Western Empire was falling. He saw it was falling into chaos. It was decadent. He felt like he couldn't, he needed to get out of Rome to serve God and to build community. He just went into the woods to pray, got a reputation for being a holy man, eventually formed a monastery and wrote The Rule of St. Benedict, which was the guide for monasteries, the building of monasteries in Western Europe for centuries. And what he did without knowing what he was doing at the time, he just wanted to serve God, but he provided a rule for community and how to live out the faith in community in really difficult barbarian times. My idea is that we are, in many ways, we are in similar times. Pope Benedict XVI has said that we're like ancient Rome before the fall. I don't believe we should go to monasteries. We're lay Christians. You know, monks have a particular calling. But I think that there's something all of us Christians, Catholics, Protestants, and Eastern Orthodox, can learn from the stability and the order and the discipline and the communal life of the monks that we can apply to our own lives. And we have to stand back and realize that engaging in the public square is necessary as Christians, but it's very, very far from sufficient to be a witness to this culture. I wonder what the rest of you think about the Benedict Option and the conversation around it. Eric, you've talked about two Christians specifically, you will be made to care. Uh, do you think that that fits with what Rod's articulating here? I, I think it does, uh, and I have struggled as, as Rod has been thinking about this to follow along with his thinking on it, it because I, you know, with the Great Commission, the imperative following the declarative that all power on heaven and earth is invested in Jesus is to go. Um, so we, we can't retreat behind high walls. As a father of two young children in this culture, I would love to withdraw them from society, disconnect the cable, and build a high wall around the house. Um, but we can't. Uh, you can disconnect go. the cable. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, we have disconnected the cable, actually. Um, uh, there, there's no reason for them to watch the Disney Channel. Um, uh, the rat is influential and destructive in culture. Uh, but I just, I do think that we, we have to engage, but we can engage differently than we have in the past. We need to be a little more standoutish by the fact that we don't latch onto the current cultural trends. 
Mike, you've written and talked a lot about the good of politics, uh, that politics is a, is a positive good toward uh, building building society and loving our neighbors. How would you respond to this, this sort of characterization that Rod has of, of an almost barbarian culture that we're in right now? Well, I take Rod at his word that he's not uh, advocating retreat, but there are elements in evangelicalism that are oriented towards retreat. We have people talking about a sabbatical from politics. They're very disillusioned uh, with the political process. You know, talk about uh, how culture is upstream from politics. We should focus on culture and other things. And, you know, my, re- my blunt reaction to that is that um, only a comfortable Christian could make that claim. If you are a parent with a, of a child in Africa that is dying for lack of malaria drugs, or if you're in an inner city in America that's run by gangs and you're sending your children to failing schools, politics is not optional in those cases. In fact, there's a demand, a relentless demand for justice that should characterize uh, Christian responses. I, I'm very much, I, I'm, I respect the Benedict option, but I'm very much for the Wilberforce option, okay? Which is for Christians to be on the cutting edge, the first responders, when uh, human dignity is at stake, whether it's uh, on AIDS or sexual trafficking or other things. And I can only speak from my own experience. I've seen Christians be part of a political alliance when it came to global health, particularly on, on AIDS, um, that helped produce a circumstance in which there are now with more than 9 million people on AIDS treatment in sub-Saharan Africa, largely because of American leadership. And the political coalition that achieved that avoided a holocaust, that is a noble purpose. That is a driving purpose. And I, I think that that's, I hope that's what Christians should be known for, not just for their own communities, um, but for the way that they uh, defend the weak. Ross, would, would you say that the difference probably between the way that Mike is viewing this and the way that Rod is viewing this is in terms of how they view the culture? as to how bad they see the culture going. Are we in this, this state of, of uh, really dark uh, twilight of Western civilization, as some would put it, or, or not? And how, how would you advise Christians particularly to look at the culture around them and to, to diagnose what time it is? Well, knowing both Rod and Mike a little bit, I, I do think that there is, yes, a, a difference of temperament that informs their assessment of our civilizational moment. But some of it is also just situational, right? You know, Mike has spent his life, not his whole life, but a significant chunk of his life working in and around what you might call high politics. And that has been, you know, a prominent part of your vocation as a Christian, has been to be, in a sense, the voice of evangelical Christianity, Christianity writ large within, you know, a White House with it at the leadership of, you know, the world spanning empire of our time. Um, and Rod lives in his family's hometown of Louisiana, where he's involved with setting up an Orthodox mission church. And it's just those, those kind of perspectives are radically different. And I think as Christians, you have to be open to the possibility, you know, there are 300 million people in America. There are, you know, X million engaged Christians, however you want to define it, and there are going to be huge vocational differences. And so it's possible for the Benedict option to be, 
the option for some people, for some churches, for some institutions, for some, for some bodies, and for the Wilberforce option to be an option for someone else. And you can obviously go down the list of options as mm-hmm. people in debates with Rod have tended, mm-hmm. have tended to do. I think what, what, what I would say to, you know, agreeing, while agreeing very strongly with the argument for political engagement, right? I live in Washington, D.C. and write about politics for a living. I have to be in favor of political engagement. I think the point contained in the Benedict Option argument that Rod is making that is very important for Christians in the U.S. to keep in mind is a point about Christian institutions and cultural institutions writ large. And it's a point that I think, you know, I I don't think Rod is coming to people with news they haven't already considered. I think that there, the Benedict Option is describing something that already exists. It exists in classical Christian education, in the homeschooling movement, and so on. But what Rod is trying to distill is just the idea that, you know, and this is a point that you yourself have made, Russell, that conservative Christians, theologically orthodox Christians, you know, whatever label you want to use, can no longer assume that the basic institutions of American culture can be participated in fully in ways that will suffice to propagate the faith to their children and grandchildren. And that doesn't mean that everybody has to drop out of public school. It doesn't mean that people should stop running for local school boards, though it depends where you live. Maybe there are some places where you shouldn't. Um, But it does mean that you can't just assume, oh, because this college says it's evangelical or says it's Catholic, if I send my kids there, they're going to get, in some sense, a Christian experience. Or because my public school is in the Bible Belt. If I send my kids there, they're going to get a Christian experience. And with that assumption comes an obligation for institution building that maybe wasn't as strong for evangelicals. And certainly, I mean, speaking as a Catholic, you know, the story of the post-Vatican II Catholic Church is the story of the progressive secularization of many, many Catholic institutions in the U.S. That's just a a fact of Catholic life now. So if you're active within Catholicism and you compare Catholicism circa 2015 to Catholicism circa 1955, you just know that the institutions of Catholicism today are less trustworthy overall as faith-propagating vehicles than they would have been two or three generations back. And with that knowledge comes an obligation that's going to be different for different people depending on where they are, but it is an institution-building obligation that is connected to but somewhat apart from politics. I, I want to add to that that the Obergefell decision of the Supreme Court constitutionalizing same-sex marriage was a watershed. It has focused so many Christians, conservative Christians, on the, where we stand in our culture today. And I, I have been traveling for the last couple of years going to speak on college campuses, Catholic and evangelical, and without fail... Every one of the professors I talk to say that we have lost this generation on same-sex marriage, most of them. Anyway, and if you're going to accept same-sex marriage, to do that means that you accept a number of uh, principles that are not biblical about what it is to be man, what, what is sex for, and so forth. And uh, when you talk to young people about it, Catholic and evangelical, many of them, they don't have any kind of deep understanding of who the human person is from a biblical point of view. Uh, they have been catechized by the culture. Even those who are gro- have grown up in churches where they're very enthusiastic about Jesus, but their understanding of what the faith is, is this deep. 
That's the sort of thing I'm calling for pushing back on. We've got to, even as we stay engaged in the public square, because Eric is right, we, we can't be faithful to the gospel if we don't preach and teach and share the gospel. But in order to do that effectively, we have got to retreat somewhat, reclaim our own story as Christians, thicken our practices, and build institutions that can be resilient in this uh, post-Christian and, in fact, anti-Christian culture that is emerging. Because a lot of these churches and school and universities that we see standing now are not going to be standing by the time I'm an old man. True, true. Eric, would you agree that the culture wars are over, as many people would say, and that the other side won? No. Um, I, I don't think the culture war is over primarily because the people who appear to be the victors right now are the least likely to appropriate. So uh, we will eventually breed them out of existence it, it, demographically. Um, so the culture war continues and, and will continue. And I don't mean to be flippant by that statement, uh, but if you look at the demographic trends in this country, in the next 50 years, the country will be filled with young Christian Hispanic families who listen to country music. And that's just demographically, they're our people. Okay. Oh, I wonder, I wonder what the... Ross, I think you, you probably have a, a little bit gloomier view of, of culture than, than Eric would. I'm an optimist. We no, win in no, the end. No, I mean, I, I, think that, I think the culture... War, first of all, the culture war never ends, right? Because people are always contending over culture. That's just the nature of human affairs. And if you look at American history, one, you know, the... The terms of the battle changes. We're not having arguments over prohibition anymore, but the reality of cultural conflict just stays. So in that sense, the culture wars never end. And the culture war over abortion, the original flashpoint um, for, for so many activists on both sides involved in politics, is not going away anytime soon. And everything we've seen in the last two weeks with the debate around Planned Parenthood suggests that Religious conservatives are in a stronger position on that issue than they were 10 or 15 years ago. So you don't want to paint a sort of purely pessimistic from a, from a conservative perspective portrait. At the same time, I do think Rod is right that on a sort of particular, on a, in terms of sort of a broad vision of sexual ethics, um, what we've lived through in the same sex marriage debate is the sort of final consolidation of a worldview that first sort of emerged as really potent in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And on that front, um, which is, you know, separate from but connected to abortion politics and all of these other issues, on that front, I think it is fair to say that conservative Christians, religious conservatives, have, have lost the debate, basically, and have become an actual, you know, a sort of cultural and sociological minority whose view of sex is regarded at best as antique and at worst as sort of potentially noxious in the way that Mormon polygamy would have been regarded by the average respectable Presbyterian of 1855. I'd only add, I don't disagree with the analysis. Um, I do think the gay marriage decision was a culmination of uh, kind of decades-long change in the view of marriage, and it was pushing on an open door. Um, these changes took place in heterosexual marriage, not in, uh, in homosexual in this decision. Um, but I just think you have to be a little bit careful in your, in your cultural diagnosis. So usually it's not a good idea to start by calling your neighbors barbarians in a democracy. 
Okay. Uh, it's often important to build coalitions with people that you disagree with on sexual ethics, and that's not impossible on a range of issues. If you're going to, you know, improve the foster care system, or you're going to, you know, be engaged to help, uh, you know, immigrants or other things, you can find ways to work in a democracy on a variety of issues um, where you disagree with your neighbors on on sexual ethics. I, I just don't think that that's a, a hopeless uh, circumstance. I, I'll tell you one story. Um, I, I also just don't want to downplay the role of policy, okay, in these debates. Um, I used to work, my first job out of college, I worked for Chuck Colson, um, the great prison reformer and Christian leader, was my mentor. And um, I helped him write some things at the time, which argued that the high rates of crime and violent crime and other things we were seeing at that in that period in the 1980s were rooted in spiritual and cultural decay. That uh, this was a matter of the heart, a matter of the soul, and that improvement had to come uh, through renewal. And then we saw in a variety of places that cities had been doing stupid policing. They'd been doing it wrong and badly. Um, and when they improved, their techniques of policing. Prisons may have played some role in this, but a lot of this is, you know, broken windows policing and community policing and a lot of other things. Rates of violent crime were halved in America over time. That's the role of policy sometimes. Sometimes we're not talking about irretrievable cultural decay. Sometimes we're talking about policies that don't fit human nature, that are in fact inappropriate to the way societies work. And uh, that to me is, I, I think, a Christian vocation as well, the, the vocation of policy that can serve your neighbors by improving their lives. Can I respond to the barbarians question? Mm -hmm. When people think of the term barbarians, they think of the actual barbarians, the tribesmen who moved in and overthrew the Roman Empire in the West. When I think of somebody like what Planned Parenthood is doing, I think they are that kind of their anti-civilizational, uh, it's monstrous what they do. But more generally, I talk about, I, I think about barbarism as Jane Jacobs, the great urbanist, defined it. The, the core of barbarism is a forgetting, a forgetting of cultural roots, uh, a forgetting of anything higher than ourselves, a forgetting of obligation, a, a loss of cultural memory. I think by that standard, we are fairly barbaric insofar as in our culture today, generally speaking, whatever the individual self desires is considered to be right. I'm generalizing, but I, I remember I was at a, a Christian university recently and a professor was telling me that he can't present biblical Christian teaching on human sexuality because all the kids at this Christian university have absorbed the culture's lesson that whatever they desire sexually is is so deep in their identity that to question it or to tell them, wait a minute, what does the Bible say? What does the church teach? Is to is to deny their personhood. That to me is a state of, of barbarism. It's not chopping chopping off the limbs of people in a historic sense, but it's a sense that we are not. We have no obligation to the past. We have no obligation to anything outside of ourselves, and that's a pretty scary thing. 
And you see it among so many young Christians, even conservative Christians who believe that um, the Republican Party at prayer sort of Christians. We don't want to be that. But the, the idea that we are just defined by our passions or whatever we care about right now, that is what the world teaches us. And I think we Christians have been too quick to absorb that lesson and allow it to define our Christianity. Now, you mentioned the Republican Party at prayer. Many of the people in this room are pastors, and many of the people who are watching via live stream are. And any pastor in a community that uh, is in the Bible Belt or, or anywhere around the Bible Belt is going to face the temptation of, for instance, a candidate for sheriff who or for mayor who comes to the church right around election time and wants to uh, be introduced and, and prayed for, or you know, all of these various subtle ways of, of using the church uh, in order to uh, in order to gain votes. Mike, you've dealt with uh, actual actual president of the United States relating to evangelicals and other Christians, and all of the rest of us have as well. How should a church avoid being co-opted by politicians, and how do you know? when you're, you're giving up your prophetic mantle in order to be a kind of court chaplain for some politician or political ideology? It's, it's an interesting question. I, would, um, I remember Richard John Newhouse, who was a great voice on these issues, um, saying rather bluntly, the church as a tool is a church of fools. If you are an instrument in someone else's power game, you're not, I think you can... Think in the back of your mind, there's something incomplete or wrong in, in this circumstance. Christian faith, with its radical personalism, its emphasis on human rights and human dignity, its belief that everyone is equally loved and infinitely loved, is uh, different than the current ideologies that we have in America in a variety of ways. It challenges them at various points um, uh, on the spectrum. And you see that in Catholic social teaching, which uh, tends to be very oriented towards the poor and the least of these, but also very oriented towards uh, institutional integrity and uh, traditional values. Um, so, I, you know, I think it, when you're thinking properly about these issues, you're thinking from first principles. It's going to lead to a variety of challenges to the existing political structure. So it's going to lead people, in my view, to be uh, strongly uh, favor life at the beginning of life. Um, and it's going to lead them uh, to object to a tone in which any group, such as immigrants or welfare recipients or anyone else, are dehumanized in our political debate, um, which is a tendency in, in some parts of the right. And uh, that, I think, will be seen, if it's, if it's done properly, will be seen as, uh, as controversial and challenging to both parties. Eric, you've said that you find increasing conflict between being a Christian and being politically active. And so what do you mean by that? Well, last I checked in the Gospels, I don't remember Jesus waving an American flag. Uh, and I think that there is a brand of Christianity a lot of evangelicals, particularly in the South, preach that is American Christianity, not Jesus Christianity. Mm -hmm. And I think, as, as you have said, and, and I more frequently find myself saying, we got to get it out of this idea of worshiping the United States. It's just another idol. Uh, it, it will, at some point in the future, pass. 
And getting into that, I think, and going back to Rod's not point not if we elect Donald Trump, it won't. <laughs> Come on, Eric. He'll make America great again. Yes. Um, you know, Rod's point on barbarism. I have in I teach Sunday school a lot, um, and I've been going through and believe it or not, not actually preaching or teaching on particular passages of the Bible, but on the history of how the Bible was put together on the history of the early church, that so many of the arguments that we're having now are arguments that were already settled uh, 1,500, 2,000 years ago that a lot of Christians don't understand because they go into church, and, and no offense to any pastor, but the sermon is you got to find Jesus. Occasionally the sermon is you found Jesus, now what? Uh, rarely the sermon is this is why we are the way we are. This is why we organize the way we are. And I think when we lose a sense of history, I, I don't believe history repeats itself, but like Mark Twain said, it certainly rhymes. Uh, when you don't learn the lessons, uh, why the New Testament is the way it is, why certain books were excluded, and you find these arguments crop up again, we can't be secure in our faith if the historical underpinnings of the faith we're ignorant to and we get wrapped up in a Dan Brown novel that people in the media uh, on TV actually treat as nonfiction instead of fiction. And if it's so individualized, we talked about moralistic therapeutic deism. Yeah. You know, the idea that the, the real American faith is God is nice, he loves us and wants us to be happy, and that's pretty much where it ends. Christian Smith, the sociologist of religion, has said that is effectively the, the faith, the Christian faith. It's a pseudo-Christianity, but that's the faith of so many American young people. And I, I think that is the problem, too, because they don't want to get further than that because it might challenge them in ways that, affect, that, that, that makes them feel uncomfortable. You know, it, it's funny you should say that. One of my broken records, I occasionally get on these, these things in, in talk radio where they try to get me not to actually quote scripture on radio. Um, but I think one of the biggest problems with the modern American church is we overcorrected in the 50s and 60s in response to hippie communes. Suddenly it was your individual walk with God. And we totally forgot about the community. Uh, how many of us actually get together with members of our church and break bread and talk about life? Uh, we are so focused on our individual walk with Christ. What about our kids? Uh, we have abandoned, particularly evangelicals, I think, more so than Catholic and Orthodox faiths, uh, just because of the different teachings. We have really abandoned the communal aspect of worship and post-worship gatherings uh, to focus on me and Jesus. That's not true about Catholicism. It is, having been a Catholic for 13 years, it is every bit as individualistic in practice as, as you say. It's, and it, it's a crisis. This is not a crisis for just the evangelical church. It's a crisis for all Christians because we've all become more Americanized than we have been Christian. That's when I talk about the Benedict option, about the communal, rebuilding those communal bonds. This is something that all of us, evangelical, Catholic, and Orthodox, have to do. How do, how do you all think we ought to, to balance, on the one hand, not being the sort of people who are looking out for our own self-protection, our identity politics, uh, with the people who are, for instance, protecting religious liberty and freedom of conscience for the next generation? How do we know where the line between uh, we're, we're watching out for ourselves and genuinely standing up for for natural rights that belong to all people. Where is that line? That it's going to be the big challenge over the next 10 years, in my view, is how to defend the rights that are appropriate to pluralism and necessary for the church, but not be seen by the culture primarily as the defender of our own rights, um, as one interest group among many, demanding you know, fair treatment in this system. The essence of the Christian gospel is not pluralism, 
It's in, in its social aspect, it's, it's personalism. The idea that uh, human dignity is, is central to the way that we approach issues. Um, so sometimes in the past, Christian dialogue or Christian priorities have been determined by the challenges of the culture, by the court decision that came last. That's very different from stepping back and uh, you know, thinking things out from first principles and then applying it in a, in a political context. That's, I think, where we should be headed. And there are great resources here. There are great resources in the reform tradition, in the Kuyperian tradition. There are great traditions in the, uh, resources in the Catholic tradition, um, which I think the Pope is demonstrating some of this, uh, and how you, how you communicate in a, in a culture uh, like our own. Um, so I think you know, we, that should be the, the effort here, it, it's to uh, examine our own first principles and apply them rather than, than responding primarily to the latest challenges of the world. But, but I think it's, it's also important to be realistic about what's likely to happen within Christian churches amid this kind of external pressure. Um, because I think a, a lot of what happens will be determined not by the strategy that Christians take as sort of a political stance, you know, relative to what whatever is happening with court decisions or bureaucratic regulations or what, whatever. It will be determined by what happens in internal debates within Christian confessions and the extent to which it appears to people outside those confessions that change is inevitable, basically. And so to the extent that it appears, for instance, that evangelicalism is going to divide over issues related to marriage and sexuality, right? To the extent that it appears that there's going to be a kind of liberal theological moment in evangelicalism, which I know Russell is very skeptical of, but I think I'm there not, is... I'm just skeptical, totally reject. Right. So. <laughs> I think that there is some evidence that evangelicalism may experience over the next 20 years something of what Catholicism experienced in the 60s and 70s, this kind of state. Which, which it has on divorce. Which it has, yeah. right, which it has to, on other, well, we won't, we won't get into Catholic evangelical differences. Um, but, but to the extent that that's happening, to the extent that Christian communions themselves seem to be split on these issues, I think people outside the communions will feel more of a license to put legal pressure on churches, colleges, schools, and so on to change. So my sense is that the outcome of sort of internal theological disputes and, if you will, civil wars within evangelicalism and Catholicism most prominently will determine just how far both sort of secular Americans but also sort of religious-ish, religion-friendly, you know, the sort of the average American who thinks of themselves as sort of culturally Christian, let's say, in the, in the way that, you know, Russell, Russell has criticized, the way that they think about how much pressure is legitimate to put on institutions. So if in 25 years it's clear that, you know, for a core of American Christians, certain teachings on sexuality are just not going to change, I think America is a sufficiently non-barbaric and live-and-let-live place still that the pressure on those churches to change legally and culturally will be limited. 
But to the extent that it appears that conservative Christians are becoming outliers and weirdos, even within their own confessions and denominations, that if you're a conservative Catholic, you're out of step with where Pope Francis and the new Archbishop of Chicago are taking the church or something to use an example that occasionally pops into my head, mm-hmm. um, to the extent that that's the felt reality or to the extent that there's a wave of prominent evangelical pastors who are signing you know, statements on for a more lib- liberalized sexual ethic, again, something I know isn't going to happen, but just if it did, then I think more Americans would say, well, look, you know, those conservative Christians are minorities even within Christianity itself, and it's totally fine to be a Christian and a social liberal, and so it's okay to put a little more pressure on the weirdos and the holdouts, legally and so on. So is Pope Francis then uh, the model, or is Pope Francis the problem? Give it five years. Give it 50. Give it 500. I think think it's both. I think the Francis era demonstrates both reasons for real optimism about, in certain ways, the public response to Francis is evidence that Rod is too pessimistic, right? If you look at something like the picture of Francis kissing that disfigured man, in a pagan culture, a truly pagan culture, that picture wouldn't have gone viral, or it might have gone viral with people saying, how gross, why is this prominent figure embracing this, you know, disformed, disgusting, subhuman person? But in our still somewhat Christian culture, those kind of gestures reflect a gospel that even secular people respond to. So in that sense, the Francis model is, yeah, it's a reason for for optimism about what's possible for Christian witness in this culture. At the same time, though, I think that there is an element in the Francis era that has empowered a model of liberal Catholicism that I personally think was tried and failed for about 20 years in the American church and is having a kind of revival now that I don't expect to be successful in the long run. And how far that revival goes depends on events in Rome that only the Holy Spirit can foretell. I, I, I think it's worth noting when we're looking for models here that uh, without intending it, this has been one of the most extraordinary instances of rebranding in our time. If uh, you had asked the average American three years ago their general impressions of the Catholic Church, um, they would have been pretty uniformly negative. They would have been about scandals. You know, the Pope's butler, for goodness sake, was arrested. It looked like the Holy Spirit was really on an extended vacation in the, in the Catholic Church. And that has changed completely. We had one of those in the early 16th century, right. too. <laughs> but, it, and, you know, there, there are two reasons for this that I think are extraordinary positive things about the Francis model that I want to say as an evangelical uh, viewing, viewing the Pope. One of them is that the Pope is anti-clerical, okay? which is interesting, which for a Protestant is hard to, you know, consider. It's like, you know, Mormon distillery or um, <laughs> like yeah, Presbyterian laughter. Or, um, but it's... Um, uh, but this is, it's really based on the example of Jesus. Jesus was very impatient with ecclesiastical moralism. I think he's, you know, returning to a real tradition here that our goal is people are more important than institutions. People are more important than structures. They're the goal. No cause is more important because they are the cause. And that, I think, is a radical teaching that's very consistent with a kind of uh, looking back on the Christian faith. And I would also uh, just throw out there that 
uh, he acts like Jesus in public, you know, by touching the uh, deformed person, by washing the feet of the, of the Muslim woman. And when, even in this secular culture, even in our times, which are so skeptical, when people see even a reflected image of Jesus Christ in another human being, it has a tremendous power. It touches the deepest longings of the human heart. And that should be our model in this. So I, I, I would, you know, throw in the, my evangelical endorsement for a lot of what the Pope has done. I wonder if, as we go, if each of you could give us a, a quick word of counsel for conservative evangelical pastors and, and leaders as they're engaging people who disagree with us. Well, what's, a, what's a word of, of counsel for them as we, as we move into uh, the next uh, generation or so? Well, one thing that I, I struggle with is knowing that Christians over the course of my life right now and later will be facing spite and willful misunderstanding. We cannot afford to hate the people who hate us. Christ doesn't give us that option. So I would say to cultivate a sense of stillness and inner peace and work hard to love the person in front of you and see the image of Christ in them. They are Christ to you, even if they're enraged at you. That's something that I personally have to work on, and I would encourage my brothers and sisters to do the same. You know, first, I would say be happy. I, I've read the end of the book. It doesn't end with a takeover of artificial intelligence and global warming. It ends with a guy on a horse and Johnny Cash singing backup. Uh, <laughs> the, there will be a last day, and, and you're on the winning team. Uh, so be happy. Um, second, remember that this is all temporary. The People of faith who served as the torches to light the streets of Rome at night will survive the current culture wars in the United States. And the mission shouldn't be, when you get in the pulpit, to save the country. It should be to save the soul. Um, the country will expire. The soul's forever. I would throw out that American culture is going to spend a lot of time over the next few decades uh, where there are a lot of victims of the sexual revolution. Right. We've talked about the success of the sexual revolution. There are going to be a lot of casualties of right. the sexual revolution. A lot of the way the church is viewed is what we do in that circumstance. Do we care for those who are the casualties of the sexual revolution? Or do we judge them and, and, and put ourselves up as, as models? Um, that, interestingly, could be a real opportunity for the church to show what it is in a very difficult cultural circumstance. And that is not being one side in a culture war. That is, to use the Pope's phrase, is being a field hospital in the middle of a battle where you're essentially serving both sides. And uh, I think if, as long as Christians are viewed as the field hospital, not the culture warrior, that is going to be, uh, you know, an evidence of their calling. I, I would say, I guess, agreeing with everything everyone else has said, that it is important to recognize that I think Christians get caught up, especially, you know, at moments of sort of seeming cultural and political crisis in this vision of besiegement by an aggressive secularism. And in terms of personal human experience, forget sort of the culture writ large, but personal human experience, the people that you are as pastors presumably meeting and engaging with and ministering to, secularism is very, very weak. It's a very thin thing. 
It is not, it, it runs contrary to deep elements in human nature in ways that I, even very secular people tend to acknowledge. And the nature of American culture right now, even in our increasingly sort of post-Christian in certain ways context, is still thick with religious and spiritual interests and yearnings and seeking and questing. And those manifest even, again, among people whose official worldviews are agnostic or atheistic. And I think keeping that in mind in, you know, in sort of personal engagement is, is very important. And, it's, and it suggests, you know, the core challenge for Christians is not necessarily that you're in a secular world that thinks God doesn't exist and it's just closing its ears to your message. It's more that you're in a world where people think God might exist, they're open to religious ideas, they're still interested in religious concepts, they just feel like they already heard the Christian message and they didn't like it or it's been tried and failed and so they don't have to listen to it again. And so that's good news and bad news. It's a distinctive kind of challenge, but I think it's the right way to think about the challenge that at an individual level you're most likely to face. Would you join me in thanking our friends for stimulating conversation? Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast for the latest episodes. For more information about Christianity in the public square, including articles and videos, visit ERLC.com.